was in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asking, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting in the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Father God, as we turn to your word, we just ask that you'd speak to us through it. And Father, just help us to see how we can apply what we find here in our own witness and testifying about Jesus in his name. Amen. We haven't got a lot of time, but I want us at least this evening to make a start um, on this sort of second part of speaking about Jesus, which is the essential elements of what it is we need to talk about. And, And I want to get back into sort of some systematic expository preaching rather than jumping from verse to verse as we've had to do over the last couple of weeks. And so what I want to try and do is to, uh, first of all, uh, give a a list, if you like, of what I believe are the the essential elements. Now, we can argue about this list till the Lord returns. I I fully accept there are other things that some might want to put there and say they are essential as well. I equally don't insist at all that we have to present all of these in order for someone to be saved. I do believe with all my heart it's quite possible one day you might go up to someone and just say, Jesus loves you. And it's quite conceivable that that person will have been through Sunday school and through church. They might have a a wonderful background knowledge of all of Scripture and they might at that moment be under tremendous awareness of their own sin. They might be on the point of committing suicide because they're so overwhelmed with the burden of their sin. And and just those words that the Spirit will take and and everything will drop into place for them and they'll just fall in repentance and faith. That can happen. I'm not denying God's power. But I do believe we're called to try and, from Scripture, put together what is, if I can call it normal in quotes, the the normal means by which God saves. 
those elements that we need to present in order that their understanding can be such that the Holy Spirit can use it to bring them to a, a right state of repentance and true believing, life-transforming faith in Jesus Christ. My list starts first with two things that need to happen to us and then a number of things that we need to communicate to them. And we're going to start tonight from these verses that we have here and then uh, in a couple of weeks' time we'll carry on from there. The first thing I want to say is this. The first thing that needs to happen to us is we need to engage with the person we're speaking to. If I take a, a very obvious example, you can present the Gospel... Queen's English, perfect enunciation, you can use the most wonderful illustrations, you can get your theology absolutely perfect, you can explain the whole counsel of God to them. If they only understand French, they ain't going to be saved, folks. That's so obvious, I know, but it points the point, doesn't it? You've got to be able to engage with the person. That There's got to be a level at which what you're saying and what they're hearing collates Paul, it seems to me in this passage, on two occasions at least, really engages with the people he's speaking to at a point that they understand. The first ones are in verse 23. What does he say there? For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, I would suggest to you that when we come to preaching the gospel, the last thing we would think of doing is start speaking about false gods. And yet Paul deliberately picks up on the fact that he's been walking around looking at all their objects of worship, all these false gods. Why is he doing that? Because he's found a point of contact with them. He wants to talk about the true God and he's found a way in there in what they understand. They understand that despite the plethora of gods that they already worship, there is at least the scope for another God that they don't know. And Paul picks up on that. Similarly, when you go down to verse 28... He wants to drive home a theological truth. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he's able to add to that, although it doesn't add anything to the truth of that, but he adds to it, as some of your own poets have said, and he's just quoting a secular poet of their day, we are his offspring. But, but he's, he's found there a point of contact with them. It's as though he's saying, look, even your poets agree with what I'm saying to you here. Think about it. We need to engage with them. That does mean, doesn't it, that we're going to have to invest time in talking to people about the gospel. Not just time building bridges with them. I I have my doubts about the value of that in truth in sharing the gospel. So often I think the better you actually get to know someone and the closer you get to them, the harder we actually find it to then speak to them about Christ because we don't want to offend them, we don't want to hurt them, we don't want to damage that relationship. I'm not speaking about that, although I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm talking about is the need to actually understand them know where they're at know where their interests lie in order that we can use that remember Jesus with the woman at the well she's there for water so he starts talking to her about water that's what's on her mind And, and he makes contact with her where she is we need to engage with people it's not just the case of preaching at them we're speaking to them and if we're going to, if it's going to click up there, we've got to be on their wavelength. Second thing I suggest to you is this: we need to understand their religious background. Well, you can argue that certainly isn't absolutely necessary, and it's absolutely true. 
certainly at a, a, a rally, uh, even in preaching from a pulpit, you aren't aware of the background of the non-Christians there very often to whom you're speaking. You can't do it. And maybe 50 years ago in this country it wasn't that important. Most people fell into two or three backgrounds. But Britain's changed, folks. We might not like all the way it's changed, but it's certainly changed. One of the ways in which it's changed, of course, is people now come from a multitude of religious experiences, if I can call them that. We not only have numerous faiths or religions being represented in Britain, we have various sects being represented here. We have kids coming out of school that have been presented with a dose of umpteen different religions and basically told, take your pick or mix and match. The choice is yours. Now, depending what someone's knowledge of God is before we start, surely determines where we start. There's a world of difference between speaking to a Jew who understands his Old Testament inside out, already has a wonderful awareness of a transcendent God who is holy and righteous, who created the world, who made them, to whom they're answerable, who's given the Old Testament law and knows the law. There's a world of difference speaking to someone like that whose stumbling block is that Jesus is the Messiah, to speaking to an out-and-out atheist who denies that there even is a God, or someone who believes that God is some force within you, or some tripe like that. We need to try, if we can, to understand their religious background if we're going to communicate effectively with them. What did we read here in these verses? Go to verse 16, on down to the start of 18. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see what that city, that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. So straight away, Luke is deliberately telling us that Paul had two different strategies here in his evangelism. He went into the synagogue, and there he met with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, in other words, those who had a good grasp of Old Testament Scripture, and very clearly he would have presented the gospel one way to them and in the marketplace with whoever happens to be there which is basically saying with those of all sorts of winds of different religious beliefs or none at all and there would have presented the gospel differently and then he particularly makes the point a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him So he's telling us that in this example given here, the type of people he's speaking to have no knowledge of God at all. They've certainly got no grasp of any Old Testament teaching. And that shapes the way he speaks because we we discover very quickly, don't we? Look, you get down to uh, verse 18 and we find them interpreting the good news of Jesus as babblings and, and talking about a foreign God. They've got no idea who Jesus is. You get to verse 19, they're calling this new teaching. Verse 20, they're calling it strange ideas. Paul has got a lot of work to do with these people. So what does he do when he stands up in the Areopagus to, to teach? He says, The God who made the world, verse 24, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inherit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Do you see where he starts? Genesis 1. He has to go right back to the start of the Bible. 
before he's going to be able to effectively communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to them. You know, we do need to not just preach to people or talk to people, but listen and try and understand how they're receiving what we're saying and interpreting what we're saying, don't we? And that depends upon the religious background they've got. If you're talking to a Roman Catholic and you speak of, it's by grace you're saved, they're probably going to agree with you. The trouble is, their concept of grace and ours are worlds apart. You tell a Jehovah's Witness it's by grace and you'll say yes, but his idea of grace is nothing like our idea of grace at all. You know, there's, there's a barrier between us because of their religious backgrounds. You talk to a Hindu who's got a multitude of gods, he will interpret when you say God in his way. You, you talk to someone out of the New Age background and they'll interpret God very differently. And you start saying to them that Jesus is God and you're accountable to God before you've explained anything, you're not going to succeed with the Gospel, are you? Except by the sovereign working of the Holy Spirit beyond what you're saying. We need to try and understand their religious background, who they are, where they're coming from as we speak to them and how they're interpreting what we say. The next thing I'd suggest we need to cover or, ensure, or check that they know is who God is. Now it might be that the person we're speaking to has been through Sunday school, they've been in church all their lives, they've been confirmed, they've been to Bible college and got a degree in theology, they might know intellectually everything there is to know about God, humanly speaking. On the other hand, they might not. If their idea of God is that he's a spiritual force living inside you that is evidenced in the good things that you do, or some rubbish like that, what's the point of saying to them, and you're accountable to God? What's the point of saying you've offended God? It means nothing to them. If you say that Jesus is God, what is that going to convey to their mind? if their whole idea about God is totally wrong in the first place. Now very often in the New Testament, of course, when we have examples of someone sharing the Gospel, they don't go into who God is at all because they're speaking to Jews who understand that already. But in places like here where Paul is not speaking to Jews but to Gentiles, Gentiles from a a, a false religious background, he starts with who is God. Look down at verse 23. It's amazing how much he covers of who God is before he goes any further really, isn't it? Um, Verse 23, what do we read? For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Here's where he starts. God is knowable. God is not entirely mystical. God is not someone who you just have to accept is there but you can't know anything about him, you can't have a relationship with him. No, God is knowable. I'm going to proclaim him to you. You go to verse 24 and he tells them that he's the creator God, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He he tells them this God has made everything, that he's the creator You go to verse 25, he tells them that it is God who gives life, that he has given them everything they have and everything they are. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. 
So he's already explained to them that it's God made the heavens and earth, he created them, he gives them the life to live, he gives them the breath to breathe, they are totally dependent upon this God, not only for their existence but for their ongoing existence, for their sustenance. You go down to verse 28 and he says, in fact, you only exist within this God. For in him we live and move and have our being. Whatever you are, whatever you have, whatever you're able to do, that is all only because of God. Your whole existence can be contained within what God enables you and God does in you and what God sustains you in. That's where he starts. They need to understand about God before we can tell them the good news about Jesus. Verse 26, he has given the earth to man. We inhabit God's world by his grace. He chooses when we're born. He chooses when we die. You're not independent of God. On the contrary, you're totally dependent upon him. Go back to verse 25. You cannot give God anything. You can't, in other words, earn his favour. You can't placate his wrath with your gifts. That's what he's saying to them, isn't it? You build temples to your gods. You build altars to your gods as though somehow you can appease them like this. He's saying, I want to tell you, the real God, the God who has made the heavens and earth, the God who's made you, the God who sustains you, you, you can't placate him like that. You, ca- you can't say, well, I've given him something, so I'm okay. You can't serve that God in this way. Verse 24, you can't contain him. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He owns and rules the cosmos, folks. That's what he's saying, isn't it? That's the God that I have come to proclaim to you, he says. Now, we live in a day and an age and a culture where many people out there are going to deny even the existence of that God. So we've got a massive work to do there, haven't we? Before we can ever actually talk to them in a meaningful way about the Lord Jesus Christ dying for them, they don't even accept that there's a God that they need to be put right with. And Paul has to, with these worshippers of false gods, take them right back to the beginning. There is a God And that God has made everything, he's made you, he's put you here on this planet, he sustains you, he gives you the breath to breathe, you're not independent of him, you're totally dependent on him, your whole concepts of worshipping him are wrong, you can't placate him with your gifts, you you, you can't contain him in a temple, he's the God of all glory. Do you see the picture of the majesty and the transcendent holiness and beauty of God that he's painting for them? This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah, God. And he wants to bring them into a relationship with him so he's got to explain to them who he is. But then he tells them two amazing last things about this God. Do you see in verse 27? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Isn't that awesome? He's just painted this picture of a God of all glory who rules the cosmos And he says, now let me tell you about something about this God. He actually wants to have a relationship with human beings. He he actually wants to have people relate to him and know him intimately. 
so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. Isn't that, wouldn't that, mustn't that have come as a, a, an amazing thought to those men and women as they stood there listening to Paul? He's just told them about a God they don't know, a God who is so much greater than all their concepts of God. And he says, now, do you, can I tell you something about this God? He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's one of the things. The other thing is this, in the same verse, he is not far from each one of us. He's the God of all glory. But you've not got to become a great intellect or you've not got to climb mountains or you've not got to go through years of training or pilgrimage or self-discipline or anything else to know this God. This God is, is near you. He's knowable. I think in the context of, of him wanting to have his relationship with us, what Paul's simply saying is that he's given so much proof of his existence to you. It's not like you've got to go on some long journey to discover whether or not this God exists or what he's like. Just open your eyes and look at what he's made. Creation pours forth the knowledge of the existence of this God. It's like a great big painting that God's done to say, look, I'm here, folks. But the added wonder of what we know in Jesus Christ, that God is that near to us, that he came into this world. He came to this planet. He took on our nature so that in Jesus we might see God in the flesh. So that in Jesus we might see this transcendent God how he represents himself in a human being so that John can write in chapter 1 verse 14 the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth let's just look at one more point tonight and then we'll leave it till next time we've got to communicate what sin is the world has a very restricted view of sin, doesn't it? I don't think you'll find many people that disagree with you that murder is sin, that rape is sin, for some adultery is sin. Some might even say that to lie is sin, although they immediately explain why it's not when they do it. But, but it's a very restricted concept of what sin is, isn't it? And of course the Bible blows that wide open as we've said so many times. Jesus took the Ten Commandments, didn't he, and and added to it what they had failed to see in it, that it's not just what you do, but it's how you think. And, and And it's your attitudes of your heart behind what you do. But of course what the world totally fails to see is how our failure of a right relationship with God is seen. And I believe with all my heart that is the that is the biggest and worst area of sin in anyone's life. I'm not diminishing any other sin. All sin is wrong. But to not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest command, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. That's the first and the greatest commandment. And no one on this planet has done it from birth onwards, have they? Apart from Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He takes them to there, doesn't he? Look at verse 29 to 31. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He takes them where? To the worst of all sin, their attitude towards God and their failure to worship God. Do you see, they've sinned in the most horrific way possible and their excuse would be, but we didn't even know there was that God. We put up a stone to an unknown God and Paul says that is no excuse. You have tried to represent God with images that you've made. You've tried to think of God as something that you can fashion and you can shape and you can control and you can appease by your chosen means. You can't do that. God, you fall down on your face before and worship. And you haven't done that. Do you see how he's exposed the, their false ideas about God and their wrong attitude towards God there? What are the first two commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And what's he found around this city? A multitude of idols. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Look at verses 16, start of 23, verse 29. That's exactly what they've done, isn't it? You shall not bow down to them and worship them. And what do we read the start of verse 23? For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. That's sin, isn't it? That's horrific sin. And Paul shows them that before a holy God they have sinned so terribly. They've thought that they could represent him in a, in a piece of stone. They thought they could take a piece of wood and carve something that somehow was God. They thought that somehow they could worship that when only Jehovah God, the God of all glory, deserves to be worshipped. They thought that they could come with their polluted offerings and their dances and whatever it might be and somehow please God. While in their hearts and their minds they didn't even acknowledge his existence, let alone his claim on their lives. And Paul just blows it wide open and says, look, you've sinned. You've sinned against the King of all glory. Now before you say we haven't covered many of the really important points I intended going on further there, but time's against me. Let's stop there. My friends, do we see that first for ourselves? Is it possible there's someone here tonight who just won't bow the knee and worship God as God? Who's somehow taking everything God's given them, they're taking the, the breath to live their life every day as their right? They're taking the produce of this world as their right, their food that they've eaten today as though that's something that they've earned? and something they bought instead of something that God created and gave. They're taking their health as their right. They're taking their intellect as their right. 
they're taking their life as their right. I, it's my life. I will do with it what I want. I will decide what career I want. I will decide when I get married and who I marry. I will decide. It's mine, 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 mine. And if they have any thoughts for God at all, it's a very little God who somehow they think they can placate by perhaps coming to church occasionally and saying some prayers to occasionally and giving some money to the poor and that will please God and, and everything will be well. And Paul says you don't begin to understand who God is. God dwells in an approachable light is holy beyond any imagining of yours. He is righteous beyond anything you can dream of. And he made you for his glory. Your purpose in existence, your raison d'etre, was to fall down on your knees and worship him. And you haven't done it. There is no sin worse than that. And I say that very, very carefully. We've all been shocked at what's happened in Cumbria this week, haven't we? There are certainly sins that damage other human beings worse than that. There are certainly, we could argue, and I'll only say argue because I'm not sure that they do, but we can certainly argue there are sins that damage society more than that. I would argue failing to worship God actually damages society more overall. But there is no sin worse than that not worshipping the God who made you and gave you the breath to breathe and the life to live. Do you know that God? Have you recognised that before him you're a sinner? If you have, then come and talk to me afterwards and I'll tell you the points we haven't covered. But how are you sharing Jesus with others? If they haven't grasped that, you're racing ahead of it if you start talking to them about Jesus. If they haven't yet grasped that there is a God, what's the point of telling them about how they can have a wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ? They've first of all got to know there's a God. And then they've got to know that they're accountable to that God. And that rather than worshipping him, they've sinned before him. Let's just pray. Father God, I want to recognise before you that it's by your grace alone that I know of your existence. I fully recognise that. I could have been born in a generation or a land where I was brought up to worship lumps of wood and stones, where the gospel yet hadn't been brought and where my own conscience had been dulled by my sin that I didn't see the truth about you, the creation cries out. Father, I bless you for your grace that caused me to be born in this generation and this land and to hear the wonder of a God who made all that is. Father, I recognise that we move amongst so many people for whom this is an unknown truth. Father, would you help us? You know our heart's desire. We want to bring them to the cross. We want to preach Christ crucified. But Father, help us to understand what we need to cover first. And help us not to be afraid of just spending time building up to that. To fill in the gaps that they need filled in first. Father, they've each got their own God, whether it's the false gods of other religions, whether it's the gods of materialism, whether it's the God of evolution. 
whether it's the God of atheism Father help us to in their minds replace that with Jehovah God for we ask it in Jesus name Amen we're going to sing before we gather